Hello and welcome to On Geopolitics with myself, Ali Ansari, and my colleague here, Suzanne Rain, the podcast that discusses geopolitics in historical context. And this is the first podcast of 2022, and uh, what a year it is starting out to be, even uh, though we're only barely a few weeks into it. So much to talk about, and we're going to kick off this week with our subject of great power politics. Yes, we are, Ali. And of course, we've done something a bit clever with the title, because what we're talking about is not great powers, but the issue of power. Even those who are not following every aspect of the European energy crisis will have probably heard about Nord Stream 2, Gazprom, Russia, Ukraine, energy price inflation, its impact on domestic markets. And then on the other side, we've got COP26, transition to green energy, a row within the EU about whether nuclear is a good or a bad thing on the road to transition. What happens if we go green and India and China don't? Do the carbon producing states and companies double down on production on the basis that there's still be a demand or not? And and what, what about the green alternatives? Are they any good? There are so many angles and it's such a complicated sort of web between all of them that often I think we're not really having very useful conversations. And so we've got a brilliant guest who we think is going to help us understand a little bit Indeed. more. Her name is Nora Tapor Kalinsky, and she is a political and regulatory risk expert who advises one of the largest global energy trading firms. She's talking to us today on a personal basis. And in her risk analysis, she covers the wholesale power, gas and environmental markets. And her background is in geopolitics, especially Russian-European relations. And she was, in her time at Cambridge, one of the very early supporters of the Centre for Geopolitics. So welcome, Nora. We're very grateful that you're joining us today. And Ali's going to kick off, aren't you, Ali? Yeah, welcome. Welcome, Nora. I I was going to ask you to start us off, really, by giving us, if, if, if you can, a short intro into this sort of the energy market in Europe and how these gas prices are formed. Of course, very glad to be with you today. Uh, thanks for the invitation. I think there are two main elements uh, to cover in this question. So the first is a bit about the structure of the market itself. And the second is the dynamics that impact the pricing. So in terms of the structure, um, I think oftentimes um, when we look at sort of geopolitical analysis, etc., a lot of people are still thinking in uh, quite old terms about the energy market and how it it functions. So essentially, since 2009, the EU has been on a track to really liberalize its energy market. Uh, Some of the points that the policymakers have adopted have really revolutionized the agency of various actors um, across the the political space. So for example, one of the main uh, points that was implemented in uh, 2009 was the principle of unbundling. Uh, This means that energy supply and generation needs to be separate uh, from the transmission of energy. So you have separate legal entities that are in charge of these different parts of the energy uh, supply line. Now, why I mentioned this point is that when we look at analyzing the the geopolitics behind uh, energy flows, this is a real change to how the actors are structured 
Um, so you had big integrated companies often related to the state, etc. You still have state companies today, but it is quite different because you don't have such a, an integrated system where there is a, a, such a close relationship between a government and a particular company. So now, for example, transmission operators are independent entities. And although you can say, you know, there are a number of companies that are still primarily state owned in Europe, I think it doesn't make as much sense to talk about, you know, the will of a particular company right now uh, because of the very complex commercial structures uh, that we have in place today as a result of the liberalization. So that's one point to note, which um, I think is, is quite important. There are numerous rules that have governed the liberalization of energy apart from unbundling. Another very important one is something called third-party access to networks. So it's the necessity to guarantee access to competitors effectively uh, to a single network. So that's also quite important. For example, when we look at the Nord Stream 2 question, because what happened in 2019 is that the EU transferred this regulation, which exists internally, to pipelines coming into the EU. And so this poses, for example, particular restrictions on how much capacity Nord Stream 2 can apply for Gazprom delivering gas into Europe. So it has to be capped because of this third party the access clause, for instance. So as you were saying, uh, it's quite a complicated picture, but I think the, the main takeaway in terms of the actors that we're considering is specifically that there is no sort of direct line of command between the political and the corporate. And I'm sure that we, we can continue to develop this topic as we move through, through our discussion. Nora, can I ask on that? Because it's very interesting because what you describe is, is sort of a deliberate choice to create a chaotic system to me, as you're describing it, to me who doesn't understand it. And I can see that the, there are sort of clear reasons and, on competition logic that you would want it to be like this. But who, whose idea was it? And is it recognised that it's a chaotic system or does it actually function well inside the industry? So whose idea was it? This was really pushed primarily by the UK, actually. Then it was taken up at the, at the EU level, but it was from the UK that the main push arrived. Um, also, the Netherlands was an important actor from the beginning. Then in terms of whether the system is chaotic internally, I would say that it functions well uh, from a commercial standpoint. But it's the, the challenge is primarily on the, the regulatory side or what we call in the industry market design. Because basically, as you, you rightly said, the point was to increase competition. But because you have all of these different commercial actors now that need to align their, their incentives, let's say, to st stabilize the electricity grid, you need to have a set of rules that effectively, from an economic standpoint, point, are trying to push these actors to act in a particular way so that the grid remains stable. And there is always a tweaking process in the regulation because of that. And so that's partly the, the work that I do is to survey this ever-evolving regulation. So that's one element. The other now, which is a newer, is the decarbonization element, but it's exactly the same principle. So you're trying to find a way to design the market rules so that it is commercially of interest to, let's say, decarbonize for you know whoever it may be 
big energy firms, industrials and consumers, etc. The rules differ by parts of the system, but still it's, it's the same challenge and this is what makes it so complex. So who, who provides this regulatory framework? I mean, who, who's actually in charge of providing this regulatory framework? So this comes from the EU primarily, and then it's transposed into the law of the various member states. And there is some flexibility uh, sometimes on how these things are done, or sometimes there are national initiatives. So for example, Germany has introduced national carbon trading scheme for um, transport and heating, uh, which does not for now exist at the European level. There is a project to introduce such a scheme, but right now it's just national. So uh, there is definitely a big chunk of regulation that happens at the national level, but the big guidelines uh, are set at the EU level. So now, of course, in the UK, since the UK has left the EU, this is done just on, on the national level. So usually it's a combination of two things. So there are um, regulatory authorities that are dedicated to energy and networks, uh, that sets uh, more technical rules. And then there is a general political direction uh, that is uh, set so at the national level, but also at the EU level. Great. So thank you, Nora, for explaining mm. really the basics. The basics, <laughs> yeah. So the next question is, obviously, there are lots of different kinds of energy, and we're still focusing on Europe. We're going to expand outwards once we've got our basic head around Europe. But But we talk a lot at the moment about gas and gas prices and gas regulation. And I looked into this and I find even the means by which you communicate gas prices, and I find it quite impenetrable. So I suppose you could ask why why, why it is, but, but who can help with that? And then obviously, it's not just gas, is it? And I think the problem with Europe is that every country has this complicated mix of different types of energy yeah. that they're consuming in different places that they're getting it from. So could we start, Nora, with explaining a little bit more about gas and then maybe where gas fits within the bigger picture of other energy sources? Of course. So for gas prices, we need to remember that since um, liquefied natural gas became uh, an important industry, the price formation of gas has to a large extent been globalized. So we can compare this to oil, for example, which is an even more fungible sort of globalized uh, commodity. But this means that essentially what happens in other parts of the world uh, has an impact on the European gas price. Um, and we see this very, very well, for example, with the high price situation that we are facing uh, now with gas. So, you know, it's uh, as, as you were saying, it's a very complex picture. I will just uh, sort of give a few indicators of what kind of factors uh, are uh, shaping the, the price now, but it's not an exhaustive list. And so, of course, first we have, you know, the, the macroeconomic side. So the V-shaped economic recovery, for example, which means that supply uh, finds it difficult to follow the demand. So that's just, you know, basic uh, sort of market uh, dynamics. You have very high demand in Asia. So an example of how things are globalized, which is effectively sucking LNG uh, towards Asia and out of Europe when actually, you know, there may be um, buyers in Europe who would be interested, but that, that's sort of where, where the demand primarily lies. It's in Asia. You have, you know, various infrastructure factors that come in. So, you know, when, when analysts um, work to understand how the price may move, 
more traders uh, similarly they look at things like for example when Nord Stream 2 might come online and you know whether Russia has the capacity to flow extra gas through the pipeline um so we've had a lot of roller coasters obviously from a regulatory perspective on when Nord Stream 2 will come online um so so that has you know fed into um some of the the prioritized dynamics we've seen there are basic things like weather as well so for example we've had you know low hydro levels in south america we've had april and may which were unusually cold in europe last year which affected sort of the, the the storage levels as well and then finally i would say you know in this uh non-exhaustive list uh things to highlight uh i would say policy as well plays a big role so any significant policy announcements with regards to decarbonization we've you know, we're having a lot of reforms right now at the EU level. Germany has been particularly volatile. And now with the Greens um, joining the government, there is a yet a new package uh, that was um, uh, announced uh, in order to reform um, the, the energy system there. So all of these things really feed into this, this general price formation. So it's kind of it's it's difficult to pinpoint you know, one single factor. It's always a collection of different factors that create the end price. Well, what what's the share of gas in the energy mix in Europe then? I mean, what how much how much of our energy needs are supplied by gas? You know, basically, to what extent are we dependent on Russia? Yeah, so that's a a, a very common question that I, I I get. It really depends on the country. So I think it doesn't make sense to analyze Europe as one unified whole as a continent in the in this situation. So of course, because of you know historic uh, circumstances in particular, the Eastern uh, countries tend to get much more gas from Russia than countries um, further down in Europe as a percentage. But we also have, for example, Germany, which you know in in 2020 was the largest receiver of um, Russian gas if we look at total volumes. So 46 billion cubic meters versus Italy, for example, which was second and got 21. So, you know, that sort of complicates the picture a little bit. <laughs> so it may, it's, not, it's not dependence in the sense that, you know, they have a, a very high percentage of Russian gas uh, in their mix as it's commonly defined. But um, still, you know, that's uh, an illustration of, of how these energy ties are, are quite complex. I would say as well, um, you know, it depends uh, very much on the other types of energy generation that you have. So for example, you know, right now, Germany has pushed in, in, in past years a lot on the renewable side, as you know, uh, really building out uh, solar and wind. But these are intermittent uh, generation technologies. And right now, because of the constraints um, on storage technology that we have, uh, this usually implies um, them needing to be backed up either by gas or um, by coal. Uh, so preferably by gas, obviously. But that's also you know, something to, to take uh, into account uh, when we look especially at the evolution of the energy mix um, in Europe. Nora, you mentioned, I've got two questions, actually. Um, one is about Russia. Let's start with the Russia one. As I understand it, the amount of gas that Russia is piping into Europe is down by about a third from the 2019 levels. I'm sure that figure's changing all the time. But Russia is obviously accused of deliberately adding to pressure on prices. How much truth is that? What's Russia actually doing? And how much does it matter? So for Russia, it's very difficult to actually know what uh, exactly is happening on the ground. 
the reports that we're we're seeing, uh, you know, in in the public space from various analytical agencies are actually uh, not in agreement on what may be happening. So certainly, some sources uh, claim that uh, this is specific Russian behavior um, that has a, a political um, you know, standpoint uh, behind it. Uh, but at the same time, there are also technical issues such as uh, certain new fields in Russia only coming into action from mid-2023, or so is the forecast for now. So I think overall, nobody really knows uh, what is in the mind of, uh, of Gazprom uh, or uh, of, uh, of its uh, stakeholder, the Russian government. So one of the reasons why it's a, it's a black box uh, makes it also quite uh, quite challenging when you try to analyze how the prices will move around that. Thank you, Nora. So my next question, which is the flip side of that, is clearly whatever Russia's motivation, it is having an impact on the politics in Europe. And that's across the whole of Europe, but in different ways. In the UK, we've got wholesale gas prices at unprecedented highs. There's a question about um, the French elections and whether whether Macron essentially is so... He can't run the risk of not having enough energy in France because he's not going to get re-elected if he's got blackouts. So there's little incentive for countries like France to help other countries who are struggling. Is Is that a problem we should be worried about? So there are mechanisms in Europe around what is called the solidarity principle uh, to ask for aid from neighbours. Now, this has not been called upon in the, the current situation. There is um, a new regulation that is being drafted about how this mechanism should be applied, how it should be called upon. It will still need to be tested in practice, so to speak. So there is a framework, but uh, you know we, we have to see uh, how, how it would function if there is a particular uh, challenge to meet. On the more technical level, the various um, companies that are in charge of managing the grids, um, called the transmission operators, um, have particular emergency protocols. Usually they are step-by-step step in terms of the issue that the, the grid faces, but in, in a very high emergency situation, uh, most of them have provisions about, for example, interrupting exports um, to secure the, the domestic supply. It's the, the exact regulation varies uh, from country to country, but you know th- this is something that, uh, that has a framework around it and could be called upon if there is a particular stress. It has not happened so far, however. I mean, just to pursue that a bit, if France it, it requires, you know, extra energy supplies, you know, obviously because of, you know, the, the, the election coming up, does that mean that, you know, even with this solidarity uh, system that you're talking about, does that mean that other countries in Europe are going are, are gonna to lose out as a consequence of this? I mean, can, can France basically hoard it's um, a bit more complex in the sense that these emergency measures are, so by definition, simply for an emergency situation. So when there is really a substantial stress on the grid, but the interventions um, into the energy market that would, in effect, partially uh, suspend the market and force 
market actors to behave in a particular way to secure the grid are to be avoided under um, European and national rules. So the preference is really as far as possible to enable the market to, to function in a way that is unimpeded. So this means that the priority will be for commercial um, interests to play. So if you know, the, the price lies in such a way that it is of interest to import into France, then these imports will happen if the price lies in such a way that it is better to, you know, export to, to Germany or, or wherever else, the flows will go that way. So this is what I was mentioning at the beginning of the presentation, that actually most of what we see happening in energy today is really a reaction to commercial items uh, that are on the table. So of course there's a you know there's a policy direction, there's regulation that can shape behaviors, etc. But it is really a, a commercial space. So if things get worse in Ukraine, for mm. example, if if we end up with an escalating crisis, which has an impact on the amount of gas that is coming to Europe from Russia, what realistically, is there a possibility that the eastern half of Europe will end up without enough gas? And that system that you just described will go into the kind of spasm that European foreign policy arguably is in, which is essentially tension because different nation states within Europe have have different Mm. domestic interests. So it is possible to have reverse flows of gas, so to speak. So U- Ukraine, you know, is is a country where you know this this system could be expanded. So you could have effectively, you know, some some aid going to Ukraine through this mechanism. I mean, in order for a substantial policy problem to arise, uh, you know, I would expect that you would need something like a. a major pipeline going down or something um, in terms of, you know, the, the sheer scale of the supply shortage that you would need um, for these, um, you know, political problems to arise from it. Um, it's, it's really a black swan event. So I would, so at the, at this stage, I don't see this as, as being a particular problem. That's reassuring, isn't it? Yeah, that, that is a bit, yeah. Surprisingly is, reassuring. Surprisingly reassuring, yeah. <laughs> I mean, is the I mean, are you basically saying there's enough energy to go around? I mean, for now, we're not facing any, you know, there haven't been any publications from um, grid operators, for example, that there is an imminent shortage or or something like this. Um, So, you know, we we continue, of course, to to monitor the the, the situation, those of us who are in in the industry, but we haven't seen this kind of publication so far. Normally, what happens is basically when the transmission operators need to escalate measures as i have described so there is this ladder of of steps to take Uh, they need to make public announcements of it that there is a a problem with with supply and that they're going to take action a b c d so you know if we start seeing these kinds of indications for the lower levels of uh, of the ladder then yes there may be a reason to be worried but it's not the case for now Good. Ali, do you have a question? Because I've got another question. Well, I, I mean, I've got a good, but I was going to shift the, I'm yeah. going to shift on to other things yeah. over that. I mean, so the, the other thing that interests me, and, and we were, you know, we were discussing this earlier, is, is also this, the impact of the, you know, decarbonizing in Europe. What happens, you know, in, in terms of those countries, certainly in the, say, India and China, that are deciding not to decarbonize as fast as, say, Europe, how's that going to affect 
in some ways, you know, the, the energy supply, but also the price for us in particular? So I think that these countries, um, so first they have a domestic reason as well. So if you look at China, for example, why China is actually investing in renewables is in part because of pollution problems in its large cities and uh, popular opposition that is arising from that. So th there is a, a push for domestic political reasons to go down that route. However, they also don't want to, to do it in a way that would undermine their economic uh, well-being. And so from the, their government's perspective, they, they believe that they can you know, decarbonize, but it will be slower. I think on the short term, um, what this can creates is a dynamic of various industries outsourcing because of you know, lower um, regulation uh, in other parts of the world, which is, uh, of course, a trend that is, uh, you know, long, long standing. It's nothing new. Um, and so we see, for example, the EU trying to act against this uh, through the proposal of a carbon border adjustment mechanism. This is a policy that would effectively price um, the emissions uh, for goods coming into Europe for some heavy industries and also for electricity. However, you may see, um, you know, if prices um, for electricity rise in Europe, let's say you, you might see, um, you know, some some other um, economic actors uh, trying to, to move out. So I would say it's, it's more um, sort of a reinforcement of existing trends rather than, um, you know, something that's particularly new. And you see actually in Europe, a lot of opposition actors so you mentioned France earlier so um uh you know one one of the main opposition candidates Eric Zemmour is very pro nuclear and one of his lines is specifically saying that in order to sort of reindustrialize France which is one of his main campaign proposals uh you you need uh, to have a, a reliable and, and cheap energy source um so it's it's definitely a topic um in european politics uh, but it's not sort of some, something that's uh, discussed as much uh, by the incumbent governments i would say you've just linked onto something which i was going to ask earlier about the differing positions within Europe, but mm -hmm. I think globally, about what good looks like, what good green looks like. And I know that there's tension at the moment between well, France and Germany, but actually kind of mm. EU and Germany, on whether to label nuclear and gas energy as green, just at the time when Germany has closed down three nuclear plants forever. So Germany is essentially saying nuclear is not green, as mm. I understand it. And France is saying nuclear is the only way we're going to manage any kind of transition. Where is that debate going to lead us? As usual in the EU, it's going to be a bit of give-give. Uh, and this is what we're seeing with the, the current uh, taxonomy proposal. So this is a, a regulation that uh, aims to define in a more formal way what uh, type of um, energy is sustainable. So we're seeing, uh, based on the, the current drafts and the, the, the final decision should be made by the end of this month, that both sort of gas under certain conditions and nuclear under certain conditions would be qualified as sustainable. This is an important piece of regulation uh, for investors um, who are increasingly pressured uh, to bear in mind sustainability within their uh, investment portfolios. And so for both energy production branches, it is quite significant to be labeled, uh, at least uh, under certain conditions, as sustainable. 
So this is effectively an exchange um, between um, France and Germany, uh, because France, as you said, is pushing nuclear, Germany needs its gas. The underlying reality that this reflects is just a completely different way um, towards decarbonization that has been opted for in both countries. So I was, as I was mentioning earlier, in Germany, the idea um, uh, since the launch of what they call the Energiewende, so that's their um, energy sort of decarbonization policy, um, has been to roll out solar and wind and to, to shut down um, coal and nuclear um, in France. And electricity is predominantly produced um, from nuclear, which indeed um, is uh, you know n- not a not a, um, a production mechanism that issues carbon. Um, some uh, actors have uh, concerns about the storage um, and management of nuclear waste. In Germany, there is a very long history of um, anti-nuclear activism. Um, that goes back uh, to the 70s already. Um, so it is not surprising that um, you know they're they're moving out of this energy carrier. Um, and I think that um, in particular, if let's say in 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 France, um, you would have uh, Macron lose uh, to um, someone like Eric Zemmour, uh, this kind of division uh, would become even starker um, in terms of of energy policy. I, well, I, again, I want to sort of like ask. Uh, I mean, you've, in a in a way, you've sort of answered it because you're saying we're we're not actually short of certainly gas. That sort of the energy mix is there, and and that obviously these are commercial decisions that are taking place in terms of the, the price differentials. But I, I, you know, if I was to ask in a sort of a, a longer term view, if you were to take a sort of a more you know strategic view of it, is it in Europe's interest to have a more diverse energy sources, if I could put it that way? I mean, what should we be moving away really from having this? Sort of our, our gas delivery by Russia, or not, or is it, or is that not necessary at all? Are we not thinking in that way at all? I mean, what's the uh, what's your prognosis? So right now, reducing dependence on natural gas is a is a big topic, and this is also, for example, one of the arguments that France is pushing forward um, in favor of nuclear. Now, at the level of the European Commission, um, and also this is the the line in in uh, in Germany. Uh, in particular, you have this in France a bit as well, but primarily um, on the German front because of their existing energy policy. There's this idea that um, renewables are going to you know, really reduce our dependency um, on gas uh, in the long term. So, of course, as I mentioned, in the short term, right now, because of the constraints that we have from a technological perspective on storage capabilities, um, you still need you know gas-fired power plants to effectively back up the intermittency of renewable plants. But the idea is that long term, it it will um, get us out of this. Now, renewables are actually a really interesting space, which is um, little discussed in terms of geopolitics. But there are numerous questions as well um, about foreign dependencies that emerge when we look at renewables. So, for example, um, when when we sort of consider the elements that are being used in order to produce these, we have things like um, rare earth minerals that are key uh, to uh, the construction of, of wind and solar plants. And China, for instance, is a clear dominant not only in um, in reserves, but also in the processing of uh, of most uh, of these minerals. Uh, when it comes to batteries, you know you have more than fifty um, percent of global reserves um, in the DRC for cobalt, uh, which is an essential element. 
Um, so again, you know, very un- unstable circumstance, um, if you will, from a from a political perspective, for where this um, this particular material comes from. So you know, this is a question that is under discussion, but it is. Uh, also low uh, under the radar, if you will. So, for example, the U.S. Department of the Interior published a list in 2018 on dependencies uh, for rare earth elements, basically where the U.S. has foreign sources. And for a number of them, it's uh, you know up to 100%. Most, it's over 50%. Um, so I think that as we move forward, um, this type of discussion will become increasingly important or at least we can hope so, um, in uh, better informing the, the policy debate around foreign dependencies. I think we, I mean, clearly we're not having the right conversation about the practical achievability of quite a lot of our green ambitions, aren't mm. we? And I had a question, Nora, this is slightly off topic, but I think it's, it, I don't think it's completely off topic, is that we're obsessed with inventing new things and we're Mm. obsessed with making things cleverer, more digital and all the rest of it. And I, for me, I'm not sure we're having the right conversation about climate change because every time we put more chips in our toasters, not actual chips, but microchips or, um, or in our cars or all the rest of it, we're creating, we're raising our level of standing consumption. So for example, my, my relatively new Volkswagen can't stand undriven for more than two weeks without its battery going flat. And then I asked the mechanic why, and he said, oh, that's because it's it's using its energy all the time to remember things. And when you say, well, what is it remembering? I'd, probably I'd like it to forget quite a lot of things that it's remembering. And I contrast that with my 30-year-old mm. Land Rover Defender, which is diesel, which is bad, mm. but it has no standing consumption. It, it it's not even trying to remember anything. It's just sitting there forgetting. And and if we're doing them, you look at the, the amount of power that is consumed by data centers is staggering. So um, one data center in Slough is consuming enough electricity to power 300,000 homes. And every time we're complicating everything, inventing new stuff, that consumption demand is, is growing. So Nora, do you know what do the graphs look like? Have we plotted are likely rising consumption through invention or, or technologizing things that don't actually need technology in them mm. and how that maps against what we're likely to be able to produce. I mean, I would hope that the, the large agencies that produce forecasts do take these kinds of things into account <laughs> because they're, they're quite obvious, um, as you mentioned. But as, as you also said, it's uh, something that's really not discussed much at all. Um, and I think this is a, a broader symptom. I mean, we've spoken a lot on the more um, you know, technical side so far, but if we bring it out to the, the broader um, picture of the political trends here, you know, we, we see a real discrepancy between the spoken side and what is the underlying reality. I think that in energy, there is more realization of this now than there, there was maybe a few years ago as we come closer to the need to meet certain targets and we see that actually, you know, maybe uh, we need to, to undertake additional actions compared to what was plotted before. But more generally, it's very um, attractive to paint a particular picture of, uh, of the world, which is all interconnected and you know, data focused, as you were mentioning, and so many things can be done online and we're, um, you know, uh, we can reach uh, various parts of the world, etc. So it's a, 
it's a very um, attractive picture for many people. But on the flip side, it doesn't really leave any space in the public discourse to actually discuss what the implications are on the practical level in terms of energy consumption but not really you can broaden this um, up you know to to questions about health um you know about competition etc etc and so i think this is just one microcosm of the broader issues that we we see today where there is a particular dominant narrative that is effectively shutting out most of the debate which in my view is is essential and you know this is the the benefit of our political system uh you know to to be able to debate and and choose the best policies but the the dominant narrative is really um sort of sidelining these um these uh people who may be you know raising important questions and saying that they're just anti a particular stance, which may not necessarily be the case. They're just, you know, asking some some practical questions. So I definitely think there's a lot to to still be done um, on the on the energy side, uh, in particular, um, when we look at how our future economies uh, will look like. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes I've got lots I've got lots more questions, but I now worry that we're running out of time. So Ali, do you want to I, I I haven't got any other question. I mean, I'm fascinated by that last. I mean, yeah. I, I have to say, your your that question and, and and answer is really quite revealing about the the nature of the debate, but also you know what um, going green actually means actually in practice in some ways. I mean, in the, the fact that the debate hasn't really been had in a, in, in a way that it should be. Yeah, it's an important uh, point that we're is. not we're not actually we're, we're we're talking a whole load of stuff that is actually at the moment not practically possible. Yeah. And we haven't organised ourselves to work out what the steps would need to be to make it practically possible. Is that what you're saying, Nora? Yes, I think. I mean, there, there are there there are some discussions on steps, but I I would say that there there could be more um, in the uh, in the public sphere right now. It's very um, you know siloed to particular technical discussions. But you know, in order to choose the the best path forward to achieve our goals, I think it would it would be good to have a bit uh, a bit more public debate around these issues. So, yeah, I think re- renewables are, are a great example, as I was mentioning, you know, on, on the fact of um, sort of foreign, you know, imports that are necessary in order to, to make the transition to more renewables happen. This is not a topic that is really raised much in, uh, in uh, public debate. Um, you know, not not giving any any judgment here about whether, you know, it should or shouldn't be done, but just the, the fact that it's not discussed so much, um, I think, is, um, you know, a, a shame. That's certainly one of my key takeaways, I have to say. I mean, in yeah. terms of our, our dependence on for, for minerals, I mean, in that sense, it hadn't, it's not something I'd really certainly thought about. And uh, there's a lot of choices need to be made. Yeah, I, that's that's true. And I mean, there, there are other issues like, for example, how, you know, we will recycle um, or treat, um, you know, the the waste from renewable plants um, when they're no longer in service, um, a topic which is not really discussed you know, on, on hydrogen, there are a lot of um, physical constraints on grids and user consumption, etc., given current infrastructure, which is also not really part of the public debate. So as I said, it, it is it is possible to find this information, but it's really usually in sort of niche specialized publications, etc. But it's not something that, you know, you would see on the, on the TV show, that kind of level you know news night or, or something like this it's it's not something that is uh really at the forefront of people's minds when they think about our path towards decarbonization and in fact nora the reason you're on here is because that 
energy and geopolitics have always been intricately linked. Mm. So there's never been a separation. But I think there is a separation between camps who just talk about the need to go green and people who are talking about what the West's policy towards China, given its human rights positions and its environmental positions, should be. And if essentially you can't go green without China, then then you you actually need to look at some quite stark facts about what going green might look like. Absolutely. Is that, I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's certainly my takeaway, I have to say, my takeaway from this discussion. The the final thought on, you know, what what, what else to, to think about, so to speak, is that, you know, what what does this mean as well for changes to our lifestyle, consumption patterns, etc.? You know, can can we continue to live uh, in in the way that we do now and also have a decarbonized economy, or does it require us to to massively change the the scope of our consumption, for example, or of our travel, etc.? Um, again, these are not very attractive questions um, for a uh, an elected politician to put on the table because they require some um, perhaps difficult debates and uh, and answers uh, to put forward. Uh, but yeah, that's another thing that that uh, I think would would be good to consider more. Nora, thank you. This has been eye opening, and um, I have to apologise for some of our slightly yeah, basic no, we're- questions. Oh, no, of course. I mean, I understand very much, you know, when I first entered the industry, I remember that it took a while to get my head around all of all of these different details. Um, so I'm always very glad to sort of share with the, the general public. Well, we really appreciate it. And thank you, Nora. And I'm sure we'll be coming back to you uh, periodically as these crises escalate or don't. I sort of feel that they're escalating, but you've been a little bit more sanguine. So thank you very much and Ali you and I will be back in a fortnight yes we will with another topic Um, and until then keep safe and um, goodbye bye thank you